The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am so excited about today's show. I already have goosebumps just talking to him. My guest is Rob Gentile, and he has the heart of a woman. Literally. (laughs) He has had a heart transplant, but his story is so much more than that. He's had two near-death experiences, challenges at the mental, physical, and emotional, and spiritual level beyond any that I've read before. I can't wait to introduce him to you, but I have a couple announcements first, so don't go away. Just stand by with me. Do you know that this week is the start of the Beyond the Veil Summit hosted by the Shift Network? And I kick it off the very first uh, talk. I believe it's this Friday, but if you go to my website, SuzanneGeesman.com, let me bring up a banner here. If you go to my website, there's just under the video at the top, are some thumbnails of upcoming events. You can register. It's a free summit, all kinds of speakers about the afterlife and what we can expect and what our loved ones who have passed are experiencing there. Also, you are the very first ones to hear that it's time for me to do another charity event. I'm doing what I call channeling for charity. I will be right here on November 20th, that's right, November 20th, where I will channel my guide Sanaya for an extended period, probably for uh, half an hour, and we'll chat before and afterwards. And this time, the charity is one we've supported in the past, Care Camps for Kids. It's a place that offers respite and healing emotionally, spiritually, for kids with cancer. And it costs $2,000 a year to host one kid, or a summer, to host one kid at camp. And last year, we sent quite a few kids to camp as a result of your generous donations. So if you go to that same place on my website, you'll learn all about that event. I would love for you to join us all. We usually have uh, thousands of people tune in, and it's just a beautiful experience. The energy is wonderful, and you never know what my guides, Sanaya, are going to say. Let's see. Oh, one more thing before we bring in Rob. 
our podcast that we did with Dr. Jim Craig about the noosphere was so well received that we've been asked to come back and do part two. It was a whole new concept for many people, including me. And so many questions came up. People were so fascinated, so intrigued by it. They were going to get Jim back and talk some more about it. So join us next Monday. If you're watching this later, uh, all of these shows are archived. They're on my YouTube channel. They're in podcast format. So you haven't missed anything. All right. So enough of the announcements. Rob Gentile, I'm going to bring you on right now. And here he is. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm not one to go through one of these read the long biography. I just like to dive right in. Okay. And we, we were talking earlier that I could just say, tell us your story. But uh, where's your favorite place to start? And I may interrupt here and there. Actually, my favorite place to start is the night I died. Oh, see, that's I was going to say, tell us about that. <laughs> and that's, that is just a great intro, the, the night I died. So tell us about it. Yeah. So, you know, Suzanne, I, I uh, had some bone spurs on my neck from sports injuries when I was younger. And originally, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I live in uh, the Charlotte, North Carolina area now. But I was just haunted by all of this pain on my neck, and it was going down my arms, and it had been going on for a long time. It was finally determined I had bone spurs. So instead of having surgery where they cut open the back of your neck and you take them out and fuse your discs and you're in pain for the rest of your life, there is a famous Korean surgeon in Pittsburgh who goes in through the front and he moves the esophagus aside and he drills out these spurs. And it's a very, it's not very pleasant either way. It's yeah, it's not, it's not, but going in through the front, it's only, it's only a one day you're in the hospital one day he goes in and you're released the next day, which is what I did. However, um, we know now, my transplant team knows now that uh, four days later in my bed, I had a massive heart attack. And I evidently threw a blood clot. Something broke loose, either a piece of plaque went right into my Widowmaker. So here we are, it's about 10 o'clock at night. All of a sudden, these screams are, are going on throughout the house. My wife doesn't know what's going on. She thinks it's my special needs child, Maria, down the, down the hall having a seizure. So. She's running around trying to figure this out, comes back into the room, and it's me. I had passed out from the pain. She dialed 911. Thank goodness the hospital is only three miles from our house. So they rush me to the hospital. They know I'm having a massive heart attack on the way. I get into the ER. They give me some medicine. They stabilize me. And interestingly enough, the doctor and the nurse say, look, the cardiologist isn't here. We've called the cardiologist, but we've given him some things to stabilize him. He'll be fine. So next thing you know, as soon as she said that, she's in the room. My wife's there. I'm passed out on the gurney. And as my wife says, it was like a scene from the movie The Exorcist. All of a sudden, it was almost as if somebody grabbed me by my shirt and just pulled me forward on the gurney. And I mean, I sat straight up on the gurney, sprung forward. My eyes popped wide open. And I screamed out the name Frosty. Oh. And when I screamed out the name Frosty... I collapsed backwards on the gurney, code blue rang out through the hospital, and in rushed a team of doctors that started working on me. So that's how it started. Now, interestingly enough, when the doctor started to work on me, and she, she's one of my good friends now, Dr. Patel, a little beautiful Indian woman, began to work on me. She could not get me resuscitated. I had flatlined for 20 minutes. Wow. 
But something compelled Dr. Patel not to give up. And she kept on working on me, working on me. Of course, after three, four minutes, they usually call it. I think the patient's brain dead. Dr. Patel kept pushing until she obtained a slight pulse. And that's when the cardiologist arrived and fished up a balloon pump through there and put two stints into my Widowmaker. But it was too late. I had gone into cardiogenic shock and I slipped into a four-day coma. Hmm. So that's how it all started. <laughs> okay. Oh, there's so much I want to I want to ask you, but I have to tell everybody that I actually know so much of this story already because I was introduced to Rob. Let me pull me up here by his book, which became a bestseller, and I can see why because I was drawn. Rob, I I found out about you. Don't let me forget where we were in this story. I found out about you because I was a speaker at the recent conference of the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And you're talking about your near-death experience, IANS conference. And they always have a bookstore there, as you know. And I have so many books. I've read so many stories of NDEs, but I heard there is a book there for you from my guides. So I walked around and waited to be shown which one it was. I saw this cover, this title, and it was like a magnet. I just had to pick it up. And we'll get to the part on the back when I read it. And I said, oh my God, this book, this is, I know why I'm meant to read this. This is for me. Once I started it, literally could not put it down. I read oh. it overnight and, and you'll see it's dog-eared and written all over like <laughs> many of my books, but this one is so beautiful. And so I, I remember reading your story and I'm, I'm well familiar. I, I did become an EMT at one time in my life and familiar okay. with what you said that uh, doctors will only try so long. Did the doctor ever tell you, I want to hear about your NDE, but did she tell you what caused her to keep going? She did, but it was a year later and it was kind of fascinating how that all unfolded. Okay. If it's but out of sequence, you don't have to tell it now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so what happened next is, is that, um, so I was raised Catholic. My oldest brother, uh, who lives in Pittsburgh, of course, drove through the night, came down here, uh, called a local parish priest. The priest came in. I was given my last rites, anointed with oil. In the Catholic faith, we only get that once in your life. It's called extreme unction, where they come in, prepare your soul to meet God. So this went on for four days. They sent in a variety of neurologists to see if I were brain dead. How they do that, I don't know. But on the fourth day, one of the doctors said, look, we can't wait any longer. We have to take the tubes out. If he breathes on his own, we'll, we'll see what we've got. So obviously I did. But what's fascinating about this is that the first person to come into my room after I came out of coma was my wife, Melanie. And she approached me and she said, I was talking in this really high pitched voice like a child. And all I kept on saying was, it was your brother, Frosty. Frosty, he came to me, Melanie. You have to believe me. He came your to brother, me. Your brother, her brother is who Frosty is. Yeah. Yeah. His nickname was Frosty. And it was kind of curious, Suzanne, because seven weeks prior to me dying that night, unfortunately, Frosty had transitioned via suicide. And his mother, they only live about 30 miles from us. And his mother had called me at like 530 in the morning. He was living in the upstairs bedroom of his parents' house. He was going through a divorce and, you know, it was around Christmas time, all of these things. And it was a very complicated situation with Frosty. He had a drug problem in the past that had been clean for years. But it was that night that his mother called me and said, look, can you please come to the house, go upstairs and try to find a note, uh, a notebook, anything telling us why 
Frosty might have done this. So I thought it was curious that Frosty had come to me. So my wife, Melanie, said... He came to you while you have left your body. You have died, and you met Frosty. You yes. took his life by suicide. I find this so validating of what happens in my readings where we're told that our loved ones, no matter how they pass, meet us across the veil. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the most fascinating part of it was, so Melanie's talking about eyes popping wide open. She said, oh my God, Rob, it makes so much sense. And I said, what do you mean it makes so much sense? And she said, right before you flatlined, you sprang forward on the gurney, screamed out frosty. And that's when you flatlined and everybody rushed in and started working on you. And she said, tell me exactly what Frosty said to you. And Frosty said to me, I've made a big mess out of things. You have to go back and help clean things up. But tell my parents I'm in a good place. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Suzanne, that was, a, that was my first huge paradigm shift in my belief system. Having been raised Catholic, you know, of course, something as complicated as suicide, we were always raised to believe that that was a mortal sin. I know the church has changed that now. But I thought to myself, laying there, my arms were paralyzed. I had just come out of coma. I was talking to my wife, crying, you know, how can how could Frosty be in a good place? But that's the message was as, you know, as clear as you and I are talking. So it was kind of curious. So that was the first part of that experience. The second I, I, part. Could I stop you there? Because sure. you, just, you just snagged me with that, that the conversation was as clear as you and I talking right now, which is very clear. Did you see him? It was just like you were solidly interacting. Did not see him. Okay. I did not see him. You heard him though. Mm -hmm. Oh, perfectly clear. It's an, it, you know, it's, it's an indelible message that I can never forget. Um, it was clear as a bell. And when Frosty, when my wife said, oh my God, that, that's Frosty. He was always making a big mess out of things. Um, and I'm just so glad that he is in a happy place, you know, a good place because he, he suffered from anxiety his whole life. Mm -hmm. So what was curious, you'd asked me about what had made Dr. Patel push forward. Yeah, 20 minutes. Well, the second day coming out of coma, this beautiful little Indian woman who I now know as Dr. Patel, we're good friends, comes to my bedside and she pulls up a chair. I have no idea who she is. And she sits down. She realized that my arms were paralyzed. So she puts her hands on mine and she said, Rob, I can't tell you how happy I am, you know, to see you alive. And I'm like, well, who are you? <laughs> uh, and she said, I was the one working on you that night. I was the one that didn't give up. And, and as she talked to me, all of a sudden she began to get very personal. She started to cry. And she said, you know, my father and I were very, very close. We almost had telepathy. He helped me through medical school. And when I was pregnant with my first child, my father, that's all he lived for, to see my boy's face. And she said, six months before he was born, my father had an aneurysm and died. And she said, you know, I've been so bitter. I'm a Hindu. I've been deeply spiritual my whole life. And she said, I became just angry about the whole thing and never heard from my dad. And he didn't get to experience that. And she said, but, you know, seeing you here today alive, maybe, just maybe, there is something out there because there's no reason that you should be here. And, you know, in that moment, the puzzle unscrambled and it all came together. And I didn't tell her in that moment because she would have thought I was crazy. 
But while she was working on me, a male spirit entered the room and kept on saying the same thing over and over again. Keep working on him. Don't give up. You can save him. Keep yeah. working on him. And I knew in that moment it was Dr. Patel's father. And yeah. that is what was pushing her. She had no idea why she just would not give up on me. But that. Rob, if I could, I just want to tell all of you who are listening or watching that I have talked to so many loved ones across the veil. We call them spirits, but they're very much a part of our lives. And they are here for the birth of the children. They are here for the, the, the anniversaries and the birthdays and the holidays. They take part in them. We just can't see them. So don't worry about them missing any of that. And there he was in the operating room making sure she had you come back to deliver yeah. that message. Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's kind of curious because, like I said, I I told Dr. Patel a year later when I came back to North Carolina from transplant, I got my heart in Chicago and I went to see her at the hospital, brought her a dozen of roses and we met in the cafeteria. And it was then that I told her that it was her father and he had never left her and he's always been with her, encouraging her in those moments. And on his birthday, every year now we talk and it's just a beautiful kind of relationship, friendship. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So should we fast forward to the heart transplant or is there so much more in the middle? <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's so much more, but yeah, we can certainly. You hell, really physical hell, truly. Right right now? No, you did. Not now. You're wonderful. We were talking about, you, but you, that year leading up to your transplant, you went through hell. Oh, oh, I thought you said, how's your health? Yes. Oh, it no, just, no, sorry. You broke up there for a second. Um, <laughs> yes. Living, living hell. Um, I call that in the book, Seeking a New Heart, that chapter where after I, you know, they wouldn't release me from the hospital. They told me that, hey, you know, the only way you're going to survive is, is with a heart transplant. But before you leave here, this is what we have to do. And they put me in a defibrillator vest, which was, uh, they called it my little buddy who was going to save me every time my heart went out, which of course you know, creates PTSD because this vest looks, looks like a bulletproof vest uh, in a battery pack. And every time my heart would go out, which was often, this thing would shock me, shock me back to life. And the other thing they did, because my heart was so weak, is they, they put a port in my chest and they dripped this medicine called milrinone on my heart, which is, my doctor said, think of it as like STP for the heart. Huh. So it makes the heart beat. It makes the heart work, but it starts to clock ticking because it wears the heart out very fast. So Suzanne, I had this, you know, I have a battery pack on my left shoulder and, and you know, every 60 seconds is burr, it's dripping medicine on my heart. I've got this <laughs> battery pack, you know, running my default. Oh, so it was like this. I was like the cyborg creature walking around. But uh, you were really healthy until then. That's the point. You know, you're yeah. used to being in good health and working right up until that time. So yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The depression that, that you fought against is just tremendous. I really felt for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was a tremendous, uh, it was a, a tremendous lesson in adversity and how to overcome it because dealing with that, waiting for, to figure out where I could get a heart, I couldn't get a heart anywhere. Um, and then dealing with my special needs child at home. Yeah. So. Let's talk about Maria and your wife, Melanie, for a while about the stresses you were under and why you decided to stick around because you, you could have just said, I'm not going through with this, but Tell us why you stayed, why you why you went through with it. It's because it's clear by that machinery. If you hadn't had that, you would have just you would have died. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, I would have dropped over. Um, I did it for several reasons. One, I was incredibly intrigued by that. That was my first real spiritual experience. How in the world did Frosty ever come to me, Dr. Patel's father, speak through me to her? And so I was really intrigued by all of that. I wasn't ready to leave. I wanted to know more about this whole realm that I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with. But most importantly, it was for Maria and Melanie. I knew that that my wife, Melanie, there was no way that she could do it alone with Maria. It's always been my greatest fear and, and always been something that's driven me forward to make sure that I'm here to, to take care of Maria so she doesn't have to go into a home. So it was like this fire in my belly, you know, this everything that you've got, just I've got to survive. I got to survive. Um, so that was twofold. Yeah. But yeah. I give so much credit to Melanie too, because she went through hell as you oh. did, you know, watching you suffer and she's having to pick up the ball with Maria and yeah, definitely. stood by you and was so supportive. And yet you, you acknowledge in the book that nobody was there for her. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, Melanie is, she's, she's a hero. I mean, she is the one that really without her never would have made it. And uh, she held the family together while I went through this whole process. I was in Chicago a year to get my heart and it's just extraordinary strength, you know? Yeah, definitely. So your story, and again, everybody, it's quarks of light, a near-death experience. We'll talk about those quarks of light before we end the show. We have quite a ways to go before we get there. Um, it makes such a good story because it has all these ups and downs. You think, oh, great, he got, he's going to get a heart. Everything's going to be great. And then this major blow, as you think you've qualified for the heart, the doctor walks in with this crestfallen face. Why don't you go there? Sure. Yeah, so I couldn't get a heart. I, I tried. There are several heart clinics here in North Carolina, a very famous one, Sanger. Sanger Heart Clinic in Charlotte. Of course, I've got Duke University Hospital, which also does transplants. That's uh, only four hours away. So I was hoping that the, they would give me a heart. But, you know, at the time, they said, Rob, hearts are in short supply. And I'm sorry, we can't help you. The only thing we can do for you is we put you in this thing called the LVAD, this horrible device where they literally drill a hole in your heart. They put a, a motor in there, just spins your blood around and less than 35% people that have that LVAD survive very long. So it was actually um, through the help of my employer in Chicago who brought me to Chicago and helped me to get a heart. So I arrived- you have angels around you. As I read this book, I just want to reach out and hug your, your the people at work and everybody who supported you. It was all just a God thing all the way along. Honestly, Suzanne, I, truer words never spoken. I. Here I am. I worked for this company for 28 years and never knew that the owner of the company is privately held is a philanthropist and that he donates to the University of Chicago Medicine because heart disease runs in his family. Never knew that. Uh, so he makes a phone call and helps me. I get to the University of Chicago Medicine and I walk in the door and there are two world famous. Uh, one's a transplant surgeon and the other one is a heart failure um, expert. And when I walked through the door, they looked at me and said, we have no idea how you're even walking around. <laughs> yeah, your heart was that bad. <laughs> but uh, so they said, "Look, we've uh, we've got this we've got this heart pump that we've been working on for like 15 years, and it's the only way you're going to be able to survive." And I said, "Wow, tell me about this thing. That sounds incredible." And they said, "Yeah, 
you know, it's uh, it's about as big as a lunchbox. And we just, we fish this balloon pump down through your aorta and, and then this titanium disc comes out your left side and it's attached to this pump. It's a counter pulsation device and it's run by an iPad. It's just an incredible thing. And I said, wow. I said, how many people have had this thing, doc? And he said, well, that's just it. You know, we've only used this thing on cows. Uh, <laughs> but he said, you, had, you don't have a choice, really. Not there was only one other human being that had it. And he had it in only for 24 hours and his donor heart arrived. So they took it out. They needed three weeks of data in order to take this thing to human clinical trials for the FDA. And it, I just happened to be the guy. And once again, angels, they installed this device in me. And now it's being used as a bridge to transplant all over the country. It's been a successful, very successful device. So I go through this whole process. And as you say, I'm all excited. I'm going to get a heart. I'm in the hospital for three months, but I atrophied. I'm about 174 pounds. I had atrophied down to about 132. I was a skeleton of a human being. And my doctor walks in and he says, Rob, um, I have to take you off the transplant list. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you've got prostate cancer. We found it in all the pre, uh, pre-transplant um, tests. And I said, so what does that mean? And he said, I'm, uh, the only way out now is to put you in the LVAD. Mm. And I said, well, I would rather take a walk on a beach and die naturally. But, um, you know, if that's, if that's where we have to go, that's where we have to go. So I had I'm written. The- you, Rob, reading your book. And just like now, anybody watching or listening knows you got your heart, right? So that was the only thing that got me through this part of the book is knowing you eventually <laughs> got it because I'm ready to hang it up for you. And I hadn't gone through all that misery, but it yeah. was like, re- you, I just tried to put myself in your, your shoes and say, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're right, Suzanne. It was my family was like, the, the hits just keep on coming. I mean, you know, when's enough enough? Yeah. Um, and we'll I, talk about that because that's the deep spiritual stuff that, that we will get to here. Yeah. Yeah. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So um, what happened next was is that after they rejected me, I had written a very impassioned uh, letter to my transplant team, and I asked them if there was a way they could figure this thing out. Because cancer is an automatic disqualifier for anybody on a transplant list. It is because uh, you'll be, I'm on immune suppressants the rest of my life. And in theory, being on immune suppressants, if you have cancer, it just proliferates. I mean, it just explodes in the body if, if once they find it. So 
um, they decided to reach out and did some research. And they said, if we find one other human being in the country, because it's a federally regulated thing uh, that has been transplanted with prostate cancer, we will consider transplanting you if we get approval from the government. And they said, but you're going to sign these documents. As soon as you get the heart, we're going to take the prostate out, all this stuff. And so I said, fine. But before all that happened, I had a dark night of the soul. And I just, Suzanne, I just gave up. I was in my room one night. It was late at night. I was on the eighth floor. And here I was in the University of Chicago Medicine with a view of Lake Michigan. And it was very interesting experience when I look back on this now about how fear is kind of like a magnet. And I, um, I, my heart went into tachycardia because I just let my spirit go. And I just cried out in the middle of the night, do with me what you will. I've, I just, I've got nothing left in me. I'm wrung out. My heart went into tachycardia. And here is where I had my most profound near-death experience. So what happened was, is that when I let myself go, I found myself standing in the middle of nowhere. And as you know, these experiences, it's very hard to articulate this. The best way I can describe it is almost as if I was standing in the middle of nowhere, and it's kind of like looking outside an airplane window on a clear day where you can see everything and nothing at the same time. You know, you see blue skies, but you're really looking at nothing. And that was the first part of my experience. And I thought to myself, I'm standing there, and this is inexplicable. What is happening? And then it was, it was, I saw myself down in the bed in this, you know, terrible looking atrophied body, this green hospital gown, you know, filled with IVs and wires. I could see the heart pump pumping me. And yet at the same time, I'm standing there perfect and whole in the same green hospital gown and wondering what in the world is going on. And the, the interesting thing is, is that it was almost as if I was connected to the vast wisdom of the universe all at once. It was almost yes, as if <laughs> I was. Uh, yeah. It, it was. It was like um, someone picked up the grains of my being. You know that I was made of sand and just tossed me into this infinite expanse. I felt as if I was connected to everything. And there I am, looking at myself, crippled and whole at the same time. And then I said, why am I not, I remember thinking, why, why am I not seeing God or Jesus or a spiritual being? There's no angels, there's nothing. But what happened next is that the creator decided to uh, show me and imprint concepts into my spirit that I wholly understood in the moment. Concepts like, this is the divine source. This is the foundation for everything. This is your real identity. Um, and when, when those things started to hit me, I just felt a peace and an understanding that is inexplicable. It was almost if, as if, if I, if I had a question, all I had to do was observe and immediately that question was answered. Yeah. Because you were clearly silently, subconsciously saying, what is this? What is this? Right. Yeah. What and is you, this? And you get what is this? Answered. Yeah. And 
it was then that once I felt that peace and I felt that expanse and I heard these things. And to me, by the way, in my per, in my experience, the five senses had real, they had no functionality in this place that I called the ethereal. I called that space that I was in the ethereal, kind of like an in-between where I'd had no sense of smell or taste or uh, there was no music that I heard, none of that. But what I did sense is that I had a, a much greater um, sense of light. I could see light and different forms of light like I'd never seen before, mm. which was very interesting to me. And when I was standing there, I had this sense of, hey, the creator uses the same recipe to create everything. It's so simple here. We've just made it very complicated to understand. But it's so simple in this place to understand that we're all connected. Everything's made from the same stuff, as it were. And things just manifest differently. And, and that was my first thought. So as I stood there, I became part of, I saw and became part of this web. And that just, when I saw this web, it seemed to, we all, we all know what a, a nucleus looks like from science class. So you have this nucleus, right? And then there's these tentacles that come out and these, the nuclei, they weave together. It's the same thing that you see in a plant, a brain, a solar system. It's this web. And in that place, I saw this incredible web that seemed there to it is on the cover of your book. That's it. That's yes. it. Yeah. And that web seemed to just stretch into infinity. And it was woven together with all these beautiful lights that just seemed to hang on the ceiling of the universe. And in that moment, I understood that each one of those lights, points of light, was a human being. And I said to myself, wow, I, I'm connected to all of humanity. And there was a message of unity and oneness like I'd, I'd never experienced before. And I thought when I was in that place, if I hurt myself, I hurt everything connected to me. But if I love, the light will spread and it'll spread to others. And, you know, that's kind of like how we, we, we light up the world. And I knew in that place that loneliness was an illusion. I thought to myself, how could I, how could I possibly be lonely when I'm connected to everything? And Rob, if I could interrupt, this is so beautiful. And this is exactly that, that part on the back cover of your book that, that drew me to your book. When I read that, it, you just described it so beautifully. And it's just, that's this paragraph here. But yeah. this is exactly, you said you're reading my book, Wolf's Message. Have you gotten to this part yet? I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, the same thing. The I've same got your book right here. Same thing, dog-eared, highlighted everywhere. Um, because it's the same. It's the same. That's why I was so shocked when I was when I was reading that book. Yeah. Um, it was kind of like, hey, I've never met this person, and now we're. She's talking about this guy, and I'm talking about all these things that. Yeah. That that I saw. Um, yeah, and that you say that there are pockets around the earth where the lights are brighter, where that's more people who realize who they are and they're shining their light brighter, more loving to each other. And that's what gives me hope that we are turning up our lights more and more. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that confounded me. I had in that place, I had wondered why there were dark parts of the web and why there were 
there were brighter parts of the web. And I came to understand that that's where the darker parts of the web were, where human beings weren't allowing this divine love and light to shine through them here in the temporal world. I understand now yes. that that web in the spiritual world is just a reflection of the same web that's here on earth. And it's the same struggle, light and dark struggle for humanity throughout all the ages. It's the same thing. And Suzanne, it's tied with purpose. It's tied into purpose. I understood that. When I was there, I thought, is that is that evil? Is, is that darkness evil? But no, it wasn't. It was simply where we're not loving and living the way we were intended to live and to let this divine love and light shine through us. That's what it was. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mentioned at the beginning of this show about Jim Craig talking about the noosphere. And he, he quoted my guides that it gave everybody hope that people say, we're going downhill, we're going backwards. And the guides say, no, you've come through the dark ages. These are the dim ages. You're yeah. getting better. <laughs> you know, dim is better than dark. And if we, you know, we're going to keep loving and learning to, to, to let our light shine and love each other more like your experiences are helping people to come to see. And then we move to the light ages, right? Yes. Well, you know, that's what drives me. There are some other things that drive me too. We might get to those, but um, that's what drove me to, wrote the, to, to write the book and to put myself out here because, you know, I, so I, I'm a sales engineer for, for a steel company. I work in a very mature conservative industry and for a long time, I said, I'm not going to write this book. My clients are going to think I'm crazy. And, you know, interestingly enough, my clients now, they read the book and they come to me with their own secret pain. And they do. <laughs> we all have these no other explanation stories and we want right? to So we they all about what people think. <laughs> about love. Rob, yes. I want to keep going with your story there, and please work into it that that incident with Maria. I don't, you probably can't tell it without talk, telling that that point. Well, I hope I, I hope I can do it without bursting into tears. But um, yes, so that's when my experience. I but I have to tell you what what led me to that so quickly. What happened next, Suzanne? When I saw all this happening, is that I began to see nurses coming in and out of patients' rooms. And I was shocked to see that some of the nurses that I had made negative assumptions about were really the only ones that I was seeing. And all of a sudden, there was a, it was almost like on multiple TV screens, I was seeing their lives in a regression of events, going from where they are now back to childhood at high speed. And every time something happened, that was like abusive or violent or bad personal choice or circumstances out of their control. It was almost like the movie stopped for a millisecond to give me a look at what had happened. And I realized in that place that it was painting a portrait of who they had become and why. Why? Yeah. And I stood there looking at this saying, how could I have ever judged these people so harshly? And then and we have, we, we, I know and I understand you're not saying this is an excuse for behavior, but it, no. that understanding brings compassion. And then when you can love somebody instead of judging them, then you help to heal them. That's exactly right. It's not saying that, oh, they did these bad things. You know, as we, we evolve as human beings, we understand that, you know, sometimes spiritually we don't show up in temporal form the way we should. You know, we all have those. And it's a process. But then I got my own life reviewed. And let me tell you, that was tough. 
There were burdens that I was carrying around for years and years and years, secret things like praying that God would take Maria to end her suffering, things that I was deeply ashamed of. But when I forgave myself, that's when out of that expanse came Maria. And there she was, you know, standing there, perfect and whole. And uh, she would, had this. Would you describe her condition, though, for everybody here now? Sure. So here in the temporal world, Maria <clears throat> presents as if she has like cerebral palsy, uh, severe autism. She can't walk, talk, or feed herself. And she is um, very broken in this physical form. And she's never said my name. She's never spoken to us. She has her own language. But in that place, when I saw her, after forgiving myself, there she was standing there in the middle of nowhere, perfect and whole. And she had this divine light shining through her eyes, not the kind of light that we see, but that spiritual light that animates all life, yours and mine, everybody's. And I spoke to her in that unspoken language of the ethereal. There was no language there. Um, language there, in my experience, was it was kind of like telepathy and synchronicity at the same time. If you wanted to understand something, all you had to do was think about it. And so I spoke to Maria in that unspoken language. And I said, Maria, I've never, I've never heard you say, I love you, Daddy. I've never heard your voice. I don't know your personality. And your mother and I have done everything to try to cure you. And we don't know what to do for you anymore. Tell me how I can comfort you. And Maria said three words that transformed my life. She said, just love me. And when she said, just love me, I cried out into that expanse that I never wanted to leave this place. And that's when I found myself back in my bed. My experience was over. This, your book answers a question that we had asked my guides and you answered it exactly the same way they did. Why do children suffer? Why do any of us suffer? But when we see children and people like Maria who never did anything to ask for this, yeah. we say, why, why? Yeah. And you've pretty much, well, you haven't really answered it for those who are new to this. You answer it beautifully in the book, but why don't you tell what you learned from that? everybody, your answer to that question. Well, you have to, I, I've, I understand now that we all choose our path before we come here, as difficult as that may be to understand here in the temporal world. But here's what we have to have, have to understand and come to terms with. And it's very difficult. It was for me until I had my experience. We are spiritual beings first, having a human experience. So it's this, this sense of duality, right? We, we have a spiritual life. We have this physical form. We're living in this temporal world. But all things begin in spirit. We're born of the light. We are part of the light. We're part of this divine love and light. And Maria decided to come here as teacher. She came here to save me, to save others. And this you is- You would have where, given up? If, oh. <laughs> if you didn't have Maria, you would have given up and just said, I'm not going through this. I'm not using the machines. I would have died. You wouldn't have had this experience, which you are now sharing with countless people about what's really important, why we're here, purpose, everything. 
Oh, yeah. you're right, Suzanne. Spot on. I mean, I never would have when when I came out of the hospital um, and they said, "This is what you have to do to get a heart transplant." You're gonna. They put all this equipment on me, and I went through that that whole, that whole tribulation of trying to get a heart. I would have I would have given it up a long time ago. But now I know now I had to die. I had to have this experience. Maria had to come into the world. And this journey is just getting started, actually. You know, and I'm learning more and more with each passing day and understanding more of this whole spirituality and why we have to go through these things. You see, adversity is an invitation to build a closer relationship with the creator. That's all adversity is. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. Actually, you know, adversity, it pushes us in the corner. It makes us sweat it out. And most importantly, it introduces us to our authentic selves. Mm -hmm. It's where we get all of this junk peeled off of us and we look at ourselves at our core and we really come to understand who we are. And who we are is this divine love that comes from the creator, all of us. We were born through light. And when we ascend and transition, we go back to that collective consciousness and that divine love and light. So knowing that now helps me get through the suffering that Maria still has and others have. I realize now that it's all a lesson. You know, it's just an education. And these are life. these are souls who chose this path to be in a body knowing it would be disabled, and, but knowing that she would be a catalyst for others to find love, that she would be able to, to help you find that, your, your wife find that. To, to keep in mind that at the soul level, we're not suffering. She is whole. We are all whole at the soul level. These are things that are so hard to keep in mind when you're doing the day-to-day -day bathing her and feeding her and lifting her and all of those things. And you just want so badly to talk. So now you just love her. Yeah. And now it's just part of the whole lesson, part of the journey. And I have to tell you, um, every time we've had a lot of caregivers over the years and we've had a lot of people come and go, but something curious has happened. They all come back around and they all thank us at some point in time because everyone that works with Maria gets blessed somehow. It's very interesting. And you told me that your relationship with her, we were chatting before we came on the air, has changed since your heart transplant. Oh, tremendously. Yeah. yeah. How so? Yes. I mean, you know, before I just saw Maria as a suffering, like I said, I used to pray that God would just take her and end her suffering. But now I don't know how I could live without her because it's like, can't take my teacher yet. I've got so much more to learn. Right. <laughs> but you talked about the look that you exchanged with her now. That knowing look, you know, there was a, a time when Maria had to go through, well, for years and years and years. I mean, we lived in the hospital with those seizures. I mean, we'd live in the hospital for, you know, months on end, back and forth. And um, it's curious, every time we would go through that, Maria would give me this little smirk when she was in the darkest moments. And then when I saw that smirk, I saw that smile when she was perfect and whole in that ethereal space. It was like, Okay, dummy, do you get it now? Yeah, you, I got you, a secret. I'm a soul. <laughs> you're a soul. This. Wow. Yeah, the, the light came on. It was like, ah, you know, do, do you understand now that I'm wow. really not suffering in spirit? So. And 
because of medication that she's on now, she hasn't had seizures anymore because that lesson was learned. She doesn't need to smirk at you anymore. She doesn't need to have seizures. It's just, yeah. That's what right. a system, but it does help us evolve. Can we jump forward to sure. your heart transplant? So sure. they must've found that one person who had prostate cancer and got a transplant, right? Or did you become that person? I can't remember. Well, so that's, I made medical history twice, first with the new pulse and then I became the person that they decided to go ahead and That's right. and and transplant because I you know I promised them that I would have the prostate removed and have, let me just quick inter quickly interrupt. Have you figured out how many people have received heart transplants since then because you were that trailblazer who had prostate cancer? Um, you know, I don't know, Suzanne. I, I I stay in touch with my team because I have to go there now once a year, but I know that through the new pulse, uh, the pump. I know that it's in uh, Boston Memorial, it's in Duke now, it's in all these other places. Countless people have been transplanted with the new pulse as a bridge to wait for the donor heart. Uh, in, in terms of the prostate cancer, I don't know. Okay, yeah. but you got that permission. I mean, that was that's like that's what I said about this book and it takes you up and down. It's like now it's like he got permission. That's crazy. The first person to ever have that, and now you yeah. get your new heart. Yeah. So this was after your near-death experience. So the near-death experience happened before the second one, before you had your heart transplant. Right. And it was shortly after that, uh, not long at all, that my, my, my little girl showed up, my heart. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so he started this show saying he has the heart of a woman. You have the heart of a, of a very young woman. And I do. Tell us what people most need to hear about that experience, what you learn. I'm, I'm, I know a lot of people are curious. We've heard stories about you start to pick up the personality traits, the cravings, that kind of thing, of, because that heart, of course, carries the energy of the donor. Yes. Well, not only, and, and to put it in scientific terms briefly, so they've discovered now through the years that, which they didn't know before, but it's, been, it's recent that the heart has its own brain. Neurons, yeah. And that's the only reason why heart transplant works because when you cut a heart, a birth heart out of someone's chest like me, and you put somebody else's heart in, what you do is you you cut the, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system off, you cut everything out. So the heart has to figure out, and it's not the other way around. You would think it was the brain. The heart has to figure out how to find new pathways to the brain so they can communicate. So See, that's just a miracle. If that's not a God thing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> totally. so, science can take lots of credit, but that's, that's, that's God at work right there. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they, they're just finding this out. Right. So, and you know, when you think about it, it makes total sense because what develops first in the mother's womb is the heart. The heart is what, powers the rest of the body to grow. The heart is what sends the blood and oxygen to the brain. So it's the heart really that's talking to the brain first. Hmm. So, so the heart develops a brain and in that cluster of neurons, the brain of the heart is where a lot of our preferences are stored. Like you mentioned, food, music, emotions, feelings, all of those things are stored there. I could tell you countless stories of transplants that I've met who have the craziest, wildest stories you'd ever want to believe in your heart. Oh, I, I had to go to New Mexico and become a, a chef. Why? Oh, my, because my donor heart was a master chef. They found out after they moved there. I mean, just crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. So in, for me, it took me two years to find out who my donor was. And when I finally did, I was shocked. 
because first of all, I thought it was a boy, of course, making that assumption. Um, and a lot of other people did too. But because when this heart was put in me, it was so strong, Suzanne, that when I first came out of recovery, I was holding on to the bed rails because this thing was beating so strong. And and I asked yeah, the doctor. Yours was just barely holding on. That had to have been quite an adjustment. Yeah. Oh, well, you, you got this. You know, there's a there's another human being living inside you. It's like consuming your, you know, your this entity. And um, I had a doctor that that they call him Doctor O, the mysterious doctor that goes out in the middle of the night and brings the heart back. And he had very dry personality. And Doctor O would come in, and I would question him. I would say, "Hey, Doctor O, I, what did you put in me? Because this thing is just—it's just beating at my chest." And he said, "Oh, we put a jaguar heart in you, kid." And he'd walk out. He'd walk out of the room, and you know, me being so named, I'd say, "Give me my phone." And I'm, you know, googling, "Is it possible to put an animal heart in a human being?" Um, but curiously, I, I should tell you that what I found out about my donor which is just fascinating. Wait, wait, look. Ah! <laughs> it's a Jaguar heart. Where did you get that thing? That's a whole other story. That's a whole other story, Rob. Oh, my God. Oh, my heart. Um, no, no, don't let me scare you. <laughs> uh, so what I found out when I met the, the donor's dad, which was curious, is that this beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl, was born three months before my daughter, Maria. So oh, she wow. was 20, 20 years old when I got her. Yeah. And as her father began to, we met in a Denny's north of Chicago, <clears throat> and as he began to show me her pictures of her life and her laptop and her art and all these things, I understood that she was meant to be inside me. And that speaking of purpose, I'm convinced, as is my transplant surgeon, who's transplanted 1,500 people, including his wife. He's also convinced that it was her purpose to end up and live through me the rest of my days because she had an affinity for special needs children, always wanted to work with special needs children. Hmm. Anytime she saw a special needs child, um, she would go up to them and love on them and try to be with them. And when they were bullied, she'd always be the first one to stand up to, to these bullies. And she also had this affinity for art. She never took an art lesson, but she was this incredible artist. She used to do pencil sketches, black and white pencil sketches. Interestingly enough, as I started to look at these pictures and get chills, my mother, who was an Italian immigrant, no education, also had this natural ability to draw pencil sketches. Huh. And believe it or not, a lot of their artwork was almost identical. Oh, I would love to see some of those. Yeah. It's, it was fascinating. Huh. Um, they used the same kind of, uh, you know, tone and strokes and things like that to express emotions and drew a lot of the same things like birds sitting on trees. I just heard the word soul family. As mm. Huh. huh. Hmm. That, that's interesting. Hmm. Well, the other thing that was uh, the, co the so-called coincidences kept piling up as the, the more the, the, her father showed me. Her favorite flower was the daisy. And she had this, these, uh, this daisy tattooed on her arm. It was three daisies and the stem went down to her elbow. But she had also drawn these pictures, uh, I guess, and gave that to the tattoo artist. 
Interestingly enough, my father's favorite flower was the daisy. I never knew my father. He was killed in a steel mill accident when I was five. And we have these iconic kind of pictures of him. We had an organic garden in our backyard. And the only real pictures that I see of him that are stuck in my mind is my father kneeling behind these daisies. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. There they were, tattooed on Molly's arm. Um, and I could go on and on about that. But but so these feelings from her is really what drove me to, and I I, I knew that I couldn't give up because the, the, the father would never answer me. It took me two years to finally meet the donor family. And uh, so glad I did because we had wow. this incredible reunion and learned a lot. But it's her that, um, and also she passed via suicide. So I had Frosty and, and her kind of pushing me forward and wanting to share these things. Um, so yeah. so, so. And, and I don't want to, we don't have the time to get into this, but I really encourage everybody to read Rob's book, Quarks of Light, because you get into a wonderful discussion about social media. It's not wonderful in that it's happy, but it really brings... Yeah. Uh, attention to the fact of how detrimental it is to young people these days and how it really dragged Molly down and the whole dynamics of the, the reward, the pleasure reward of social media that's really not true love like we're supposed to be learning to feel for each other. So without going into that, I really honor you for that big discussion on that. It's so important for people to become aware of. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So I want to, boy, there's so much more. We don't have to end right on the hour. We might go a little over. But I wrote down a quote from your book. You wrote at one point, you were wondering, how did I get so lost along the way? I believe you were speaking spiritually because I would say now you're found. Yes. Right? yes. Yeah. How do most people get so lost along the way from what you've learned through your experiences? Lost meaning you forgot who we are, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I think I, I think I wrote that when I um, came out of uh, the hospital after my heart attack. I think that's when I wrote that. What really helped me with the book, and I would encourage people to do this because it's so, it is just the most cathartic thing you can do. But when Maria got sick, I started journaling and I've never stopped. And to be honest with you, the, the journals, it made it easy for me to write my book because I had both oral journals. I always carry a little tape recorder around and, and my written journals in the hospital. Sometimes it was hard to write, so I would just record. And I found that to be just a really authentic way to capture the moment. Because as we know, as, as time goes on, our memory kind of gets scrambled up a little bit and things start to fade. But when you write it down in that moment uh, and you go back, it's so telling and you say to yourself, wow, I mean, did I really <laughs> feel this way and say that in that moment? And it's very powerful. So I, I, when I came out of coma lying there, uh, Suzanne, to, to come back to your question, is I had this moment of, I was 56 years old. I just had a massive heart attack. My heart's destroyed. I've got this special needs child. And I'm laying there saying, what have I done with my life? What have I done? Here I am, you know, all these years working nonstop to make sure that we have enough money to keep Maria at home and she never has to be put away. 
And I've let all these other things in my life, my own spirituality, all these other things go. And I'm just focused on this one thing and let all these other things, the gifts that I know that, that I was born to do and my own personal purpose, all of these things that we have to figure out and we have to fulfill because that is where freedom is. And that is where our light shines the brightest. And I think that what happens to us along the way is that the vicissitudes of life, adversity, addictions, all of these things get in the way and they kind of dim our light down a little bit and they darken our spirit. And we have to remember who we are. And we have to remember that the way we find that out is in service to others. As we, as we help other people in, in this world, and, and we talk about this web as being a mirror of what we do here, you know, reflects in the spiritual world and vice versa, because we live, we live in these two worlds. But I found that being in service to others, we, our light really begins to brighten. And as we build that confidence, it frees us up to, to start to look at ourselves too. And, and it emboldens us to try to discover who we really are, what our gifts are. Would and, you define your definition? Because we've said it several times in this show. Who are we really? We are born of this divine love and light, spiritual beings living inside these fragile clay vessels, having this experience. But we are all divine in nature. And we never got into the cork because here's where this comes in. So these corks that I saw in that space, and what the book is named after, they're the smallest building blocks of matter. And these quarks combine, there are many of them, quarks combine to create infinite possibilities in the universe. They can become a dog, a plant, a tree, or a person. And I understood in that space that this is what the creator uses. God uses light to create, transform, and heal us. It's all about light. We are made of light. These quarks are made of light. So who we are are these spiritual light beings born from this energy source, from this divine creator. And when we remember that that's our real identity, that's what stops us from getting drug into the darkness and not becoming everything we're created to be. And that's where purpose comes in, to find that purpose. What is it that we were sent here to do? Because everybody has been sent here with a special gift, a mission, a purpose. We've got to figure that out. And when we figure that out, that's how we light up the world, you know? And I, I just got a hit here to, to say that many people listening or watching right now can't find their way out of the darkness. They, they're, the story is so heavy. And I know you would agree with me that just a moment of reflection on gratitude will lift you faster than anything. Just focus oh. on what it is you have to be grateful for. There is always something. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. So I, and, and I know you do too, after reading Wolf's message, I don't start my day unless I meditate. And, okay. you know, meditation, everybody thinks it's, <clears throat> oh, you've got to, you know, you've got to get into the lotus position. You've got to move your hands certain way, all this craziness. Forget about that. It's about getting into a silent space being grateful, as you say, because like you say, we're all grateful for something and understanding, just, just meditating and thinking about 
this divine nature that you really are, regardless of how much muck is all over you, it's when you peel it back, you were made of light, were these divine, beautiful creatures with yes. infinite possibilities. And when you sit like that, Rob, and you think thoughts of gratitude, this is when your light starts turning up. You may feel you're not making any difference at all, but you are. You're allowing that inner light to shine and your light going up affects other people. It's That's all it. that web, that web you're talking about. It starts to spread. Yeah. 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 Oh, I could talk to you for hours, but I want, I want to just look down here at the book a minute because you were talking about how helpful it was for you when you were going through the dark night of the soul to journal. And that's one of the favorite things I loved about this book is throughout you have these italicized sections that are excerpts from your journal. Yeah. So I had made these notes, which I hadn't even looked at <laughs> in the whole program, but one of them, page 134, has a star. So I haven't read it right now, but I want to see. It's a section, and it's I wrote in the in the margin, key. This is a key. So let's see what you wrote in your journal, okay? Give me a second here. Sure. I've been shown time and time again that when I let go and trust, everything works out for good. A friend of yours who you call the Rev told me long ago, God can't take control until you relinquish control. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the truth. You know, <clears throat> I never forget when I got to the University of Chicago Medicine before, before I met um, Dr. Juvenand and I'd heard he was a legend, uh, an uncharacteristically tall Indian man, <clears throat> excuse me. And I didn't even know who the guy was, but he's the one that transplant over like 1500 people. And, and speaking of someone who, who understands that your light brightens when you serve. So he goes back to India every year and he offers his cardiac services, everything for free in a hospital. Nice. Um, but he walked into the room, floated into the room, um, floated into the room. I'm sitting there reading and I look up and there's this Indian man staring down at me pulls up a chair, doesn't introduce himself. And he says, so tell me, what have you learned from your heart attack? I said, what? Mm -hmm. He said, you know what I'm talking about. What have you learned from your heart attack? And it, instantly I knew what he was talking about. I said, I learned I can't control anything. And he said, neither can I. He said, I want you to understand something. The only thing you can control are your actions, but God controls the outcome. And boy, it really hit home with me. That's true. We have and it was so true throughout your book. You know, you can't control. All of a sudden you have prostate cancer. And then, and that's why we drive ourselves crazy, because we try to control. That's right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And it does drive us crazy. Yeah. And the we have we control. how things are supposed to be and should be and have to be. And yeah. when you just trust that there is a reason and a purpose for everything, it will reveal itself. Exactly. It does. It yeah. does. We That's might not like what it says. Hey, I'm the last guy who wanted to die and, <laughs> and go through this whole thing. But I realize now that that had to happen to me so I could understand. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. I'd go through it all again to get to this place because I was lost. I didn't understand my real identity and I didn't understand who I was. But now I do. You know, it's kind of like that um, uh, Disney movie I watch with Maria sometime, you know, The Lion King, remember Simba? And he has that dark night of the soul and there he is. He doesn't know who he is. And the father appears, ironically, in a cloud, the lion father. And 
you know, Simba's ready to turn around and let the whole kingdom, uh, you know, die. And he says, Simba, remember who you are. You know, that's what it's all about. Remembering who we are. That's what gets us through a day. Well, it has been an honor to talk with you. I truly encourage everyone to read Quarks of Light. I would like to hear from you as we wrap this up. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is, is that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And that when we realize that we are all one and that we are all connected, it's the only way we're ever going to find peace within ourselves and peace within our world. And that's it. And it's so simple. And you say in your book that, uh, you know, we still haven't gotten this right, but that's what evolution is all about. And it's, it's books like yours and, and this, you're walk, going around sharing this with other people that, that makes a difference. I can feel your beautiful energy. I, I just feel so much love for you. It's just a beautiful, beautiful soul. Thank you. And I know everybody shares that with me. You can feel it. And I just thank you. And I see the, that it's a real gift that thank all you. those people came together to help you. I mean, yeah. many, many players. And please give our thanks to Melanie and our yeah. love to Maria. I will. Thank you. Okay. And thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, Suzanne, again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure is all of ours. Everybody, thank you for joining us. And he just touched me so much. I hope you'll read the book because it goes into so much emotion. And the spiritual lessons are just woven throughout. He doesn't save them till the end. And pay attention as you read. It's all about love. So I hope that you will join me here next Monday. We'll continue talking about this sphere of consciousness around our planet, the no sphere, more on that, and a lot of other guests lined up after that. Meanwhile, go out and make this a beautiful week. Lots of love to all of you. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation Podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.